who lives, who dies, and who decides? That's the tripart question we gather around here today as we launch Westminster Town Hall Forum's 10th consecutive season. I am Donald Meisel, minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis and moderator of these forums, which are afforded to the community, to you, as a public service. We look at key issues in ethical perspective. That's our ongoing commitment to you, which is mightily focused in today's agenda about extending the life of the terminally ill or helping them to die. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. Beyond your own consciences, which you've brought with you here today, we have three distinctive voices of conscience with us as our special guests. Dr. Joseph Stanton, of the World Federation of Doctors Who Respect Human Life, the Reverend Ralph Miro, who is a Unitarian minister and director of the Pacific Northwest Branch of the Hemlock Society. He is with us in place of Derek Humphrey of that same society whose wife is undergoing surgery today. We thank him for stepping into the breach. And Professor Walter Benjamin, chairperson of the religion department at Hamlin University in St. Paul. Mr. Merrill and Dr. Stanton will make approximately 20-minute presentations each, after which Professor Benjamin will pose the initial questions to stimulate dialogue. Then, too, we will be entertaining questions from the floor, from you. Our signer for the hearing impaired today is Catherine Hallett. First, we will hear from Mr. Merrill. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm pleased to, so many, to see so many people turn out for a consideration of the public policy aspects of a very profound ethical subject. As representative of the Hemlock Society in the Pacific Northwest, I work every day to encourage persons to communicate with their family members and with their physicians in regard to their desires for end-of-life treatment in the event of terminal illness. I would strongly encourage you in Minnesota to undertake the same kind of communication. I know your state has recently enacted a very uh, fine living will legislation, and I hope that people in Minnesota will take advantage now of the opportunity you have to express your desires about end-of-treatment decisions in writing in a legal manner. The question, who lives, who dies, who decides? Well, we all die. That's a destiny that we share with all living creatures in the animal and plant kingdoms. But who decides? Who decides about access to health care? I know that there is a significant percentage of people in your state who do not have health insurance. That's an important question for people to consider. Who decides about prioritizing the allocation of limited health care resources 
your state legislature will be struggling with that issue as it looks at Medicaid expenses. Who decides about decisions to forego treatment judged ineffective in restoring an acceptable quality of life? Who decides about end-of-treatment decisions made by dying patients or their spouse or a guardian? Who decides about requests for assistance in dying made to physicians by dying patients? That is the topic which has been called assisted suicide and which has been described in a recent uh, article in the New England Journal of Medicine according to which the judgment of the 12 physicians writing the article was that it is, uh, it happens, and it is certainly not rare, and if 10 of the physicians came to the conclusion that in certain circumstances it is not inherently immoral. I think there are some initial assumptions which we can make for our program today. First, all of us have come here to consider what is right for dying persons. I don't believe that anyone has come to learn to do wrong. I feel that none of us would want to encourage inadequate treatment or promote inhumanity. Our common motivation is one of compassion. Second, I think we can probably agree on the necessity for clear and objective and impartial language in discussing a complicated subject. I think we should forego statements like, doctors should not be allowed to kill their patients. I think we should forego statements like, death is not a solution for the problems of being elderly or disabled or poor. Those statements are not the ethical issues relevant to end of treatment and end of life decisions by dying persons. The word killing is full of inaccurate, and misleading innuendo. For no one proposes that doctors be given any carte blanche authority to arbitrarily end the life of anyone against the will. That would be a preposterous proclamation. However, if a terminally ill patient requests assistance in dying from their physician and the physician complies out of his or her belief that death is the only means of ending that patient's suffering, then I think to confuse that aid in dying with killing is like confusing lovemaking with rape. The differences are profound, and they deal with intentionality and motivation and voluntariness and consent. Now this topic is very much in the news. Let me just share with you a brief article published on September 7th and describing the situation of a man named Larry James McAfee. Who it was determined by a judge has the legal right to disconnect the ventilator that has kept him alive since 1985 when he had a motorcycle accident. And the judge determined that his death would not be considered a suicide and that any healthcare professional who would volunteer to assist by disconnecting the ventilator or administering a sedative would not be subject to criminal or civil penalties. Judge Edward Johnson had this to say, I can't recall having met anyone who had a stronger impact on my own life than Larry McAfee when we met at the hospital. 
I think Larry loves life as much as any human being who ever lived. And that's why he is seeking the relief he is seeking. Johnson said that without any reservation whatever, he found McAfee to be a rational, articulate adult who was well-oriented as to time and place and who was not laboring under any emotional or psychological disabilities. He said McAfee, who has been attached to a respirator since his neck was broken, was fully aware of the consequences of his decision and understands that he could not live without the aid of a ventilator for more than a few minutes. And so that gravely injured gentleman was enabled by a judge to make his own decision as to the quality of his life and his desire to die rather than to continue in a manner which he felt for himself was intolerable. Our focus is on ethics, not politics. And so we should ask, is there a basis in ethics for requiring that life be prolonged in violation of the wishes of a mentally competent dying person? Is there a basis in ethics for prohibiting a dying person from intentionally choosing to die? Is there a basis in ethics for prohibiting a dying person from dying in a manner of his or her own choice, which he or she feels is consistent with dignity and self-respect? Is there a basis in ethics for prohibiting one person from providing assistance in dying by undertaking a compassionate act requested by another who is already dying? And by what ethical authority does the state prohibit a dying person from seeking to leave this life if their religious belief convinces them that their soul is destined for another life? As I indicated, I speak daily with dying persons who are seeking to die, many of them calling to see if they can't find the name of a, of a physician who might help them die. Well, what restrains a physician from agreeing to assist a dying patient to die? Some would point to the Hippocratic Oath. And just in case there are a few among us who have not reviewed that recently, let me share it with you. The Hippocratic Oath. I swear by Apollo the physician, by Aesculapius, Hygieia, and Panacea, and I take to witness all the gods, all the goddesses, to keep according to my ability and my judgment the following oath. To consider dear to me as my parents him who taught me this art, to live in common with him, and if necessary share my goods with him, to look upon his children as my own brothers, to teach them this art if they so desire without fee or written promise, to impart to my sons and the sons of the master who taught me and the disciples who enrolled themselves and have agreed to the rules of the profession, but to these alone, the precepts and the instruction. I will prescribe regimen for the good of my patients according to my ability and my judgment and never do harm to anyone. To please no one will I prescribe a deadly drug nor give advice which may cause his death, nor will I give a woman a pessary to procure abortion, but I will preserve the purity of my life and my art. I will not cut for stone, even for patients in whom the disease is manifest. I will leave this operation to be performed by practitioners. In every house where I come, I will enter only for the good of my patients, 
keeping myself far from all intentional ill-doing and all seduction, and especially from the pleasures of love with women or with men, be they free or slaves. All that may come to my knowledge in the exercise of my profession or outside of my profession or in my daily commerce with men which ought not be spread abroad, I will keep secret and will never reveal. If I keep this oath faithfully, may I enjoy my life and practice my art, respected by all men and in all times, but if I swerve from it or violate it, may the reverse be my lot. Well, obviously, the Hippocratic Oath is a pledge to keep confidential the trade secrets of an ancient guild, to live with one's teacher, to offer free education in the secret arts to his children, but only to sons, not to daughters, not to prescribe poisons or a pessary, which of course is used for uterine prolapse, not abortion, and not to perform surgery, even to remove gallstones. Fortunately, there's nothing in the Hippocratic Oath about mutual funds or aspiring to own a Mercedes. Or I think many physicians might look differently upon it but this is hardly consistent with the scientific method. It is a not consistent with a constantly expanding body of knowledge. It is not a compelling restraint today. And only 44% of American medical schools request or require that their graduating students even listen to a reading of the Hippocratic Oath. But there's another restraint, and that's the restraint of law, not ethics. It's a restraint which prohibits assistance with suicide. It is not a crime in Minnesota for a dying person to end their life or to attempt to end their life. But it is a crime in your state, as in mine, for anyone to assist that person to end his or her life. It is a crime to assist in the completion of a non-crime. A physician who so complies with Assistance in dying can expect action by the medical disciplinary board if he or she is found out, a revocation of the business license, indictment of prosecution for a class one felony. But it happens. Physicians do sometimes yield to the pleading of dying persons. And they do that in a clandestine, secret manner because they know that their career and their future is at stake. They further help some of their colleagues to die who are in that condition. And I know one physician who told me, I would do that if it was my mother in that situation. If she begged me to die, I could not stand to see her suffer. Yes, I would help her to die, but I could not do that for a patient. And so it happens in a secret and clandestine manner. The authors of the article in the New England Journal of Medicine had a statement which reads, patients who want a doctor's assistance with suicide may be unwilling to endure their terminal illness because they lack information about what lies ahead. I have to tell you that most of the patients with whom I discuss this are very well informed about what lies ahead. Many of them have witnessed personally the death by cancer of a parent or a spouse or the death by a partner or a loved one from AIDS. 
and they understand all too clearly the physical and mental deterioration which awaits them. They have seen the shriveling up. They have seen the loss of bodily control, the dementia and the hallucinations and the paranoia, the sweats and the fevers, the spasms of vomiting, the ongoing diarrhea, the total devouring of their loved ones' bodies by these diseases. They understand all too clearly what awaits them. They have an abundance of horrifying information, as do those of us who have seen that type of death in a parent or loved one. And so we might come even to the same decision if we were in their situation. It is time to change the law. It is time to permit licensed physicians, but only licensed physicians, to respond to the repeated request of a dying person to help end that person's suffering, even if that can only be accomplished by death. This should be permitted only in a circumstance where a terminally ill adult person with an incurable condition where death is expected within six months and whose prognosis has been confirmed in writing by other physicians, communicating their wish through a written directive witnessed by independent persons, this should be permitted. It will be rare. It is estimated in the Netherlands, which has a situation somewhat like this today, that only 4% of the persons who die annually die according to this type of situation. And there, after long consultation with the physician and other physicians and nurses and social workers and family members, a physician can, without fear of prosecution, assist persons to die who feel that the quality of their life has been stripped away. Now, and I know that there are many allegations about the Netherlands and the situation there. I have a communication in my briefcase from a physician in Holland who reports on activities by the Right to Life organization in Holland and in America to discredit the work of those physicians and they are appalled by that. They are incensed at the allegations that Dutch physicians would cause involuntary death. We should remember that Holland was one of the countries which resisted the German occupation most strongly. The Dutch physicians were the leaders in Europe in not surrendering the names of disabled patients to the Nazi occupation. And we should make very clear that what was done during the years of Hitler's Germany bears no correlation at all to the compassionate assistance in death of already dying persons. What happened in Hitler's Germany, we know, was a twisted attempt to, to purify the Aryan race. And so people who were not considered contributors to the betterment of Germany's German society were done away. 
But there's no evidence that this was ever done out of compassionate intent to ease the suffering of dying persons. It was political murder, and to confuse that with the attempt by conscientious, considerate physicians today to alleviate their patient's suffering, I think is very dishonest. Suicide is the irrational act of depressed by a depressed, despondent person whose emotional illness may be cured or improved with treatment. And we should all do everything possible to prevent suicide and support organizations which work in that field. But the self-determined death, the rational choice of a mentally competent person already suffering an incurable physical illness from which there is no recovery is a very different matter. We need to be honest about that. And we need to recognize, I believe, that at some point there may be many of us who will face a process of dying which is unendurable and which could be alleviated only with enormous doses of morphine or other narcotics which would strip away our consciousness and leave us in a mental stupor. And that is not what most people believe is a characteristic of death with dignity. It is time to change the law for public discussion, for public debate, for honesty about this subject, for use of clear language. It's time to change the law and let dying people have the voluntary option, if they choose, of a death which preserves their sense of dignity and their self-respect. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Miro. And now we will hear from Dr. Stanton, sir. Mr. Miro, ladies and gentlemen, I would first express my gratitude to the organizers and sponsors of this public forum for the privilege of appearing before you. Soothed by the magnificent voice of that great organ, Standing in this magnificent church as the warm sun even now filters through those beautiful stained glass windows is one who comes from the discipline of Madison to address the question, who lives, who dies, who decides? To the answer, who kills, you have heard the suggestion, the medical profession, and we will keep it confined and everything will be tidy and all right. I will respond to that. In this church, which was built by the sacrifice of many, to honor one whose image, however faintly, or legend, is on the legend on our currency, in God we trust, it is perhaps not impertinent for one who comes from the discipline of medicine to reach back into our common heritage to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1, 3, and then skip to verse 13. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord thy God, which 
has brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other be God before me, before thee. And then these four words in verse 13, thou shalt not kill. If instead of being in the Alice in Wonderland situation where words don't mean what they mean, they mean what I say they mean and nothing more, what you are being asked is to convert what is in the eyes of the law in this state at this moment, a homicidal act into a sanitized medical act and assure the medical profession legal immunity for its participation. I will show you that it is historically dangerous, particularly in terms of medicine in this century, and I will cite the evidence which you can go and consult yourself and make up your own mind. I will point out that the Right to Die movement and Aid in Dying and Hemlock treat diagnosis and prognosis as if they were absolutely infallibility. I will tell you that no doctor in this audience can say to you, you will die in five months and 21 days and, and guarantee that you cannot live eight months and 30 more days. Prognosis has long been the most fallible of all the medical arts, and I will cite evidence in terms of that. Suicide and the impulse for euthanasia are often a sign of depression and never more evident than in this man in Georgia at this moment who is before the courts, the man over whom the judge wept as he was reading his statement. But listen to what the people from the handicapped associations are saying about that. Listen to the doctors who have read the testimony. The state of Georgia will not support this man in, in individual living or independent living but it will guarantee that he has a right to end his own life. He's been kicked into from one medical institution to another, and he says, I want to die because of the psychological pain of my condition. If that is not a creed accord, then I do not recognize it. I will quote from William Osler and from Lamerton, Dr. Lamerton, the physician of the hospice movement, no one can force any person to enter the hospital. No one, no physician can give you so much as an aspirin without your explicit or at least implied consent. No one can give you treatment unless you accept it and you are not obliged. You have the power to reject it even though it means your death. You have the power, I say, I do not believe, say that you have the moral right. Francis Peabody said that the secret of caring for the patient is care of the patient. Uh, and I would remind you how refreshing it is today, even though disparagingly, to hear the Hippocratic Oath which has protected both society and the physician for 2,400 years where it was followed, to hear those words, I will do that which is for my patient's benefit and never to their harm. 
I will give, not give a deadly medicine to anyone even if I ask, nor will I counsel any such thing. In purity and holiness I will practice my, my art, and insofar as I uh, uh, do this, may I be favored, and if not, may the reverse be my faith. Faith. What are we talking about? Joseph Fletcher, in uh, Free Inquiry, the uh, humanist magazine for volume 19, number one, says to address the problem rationally, we must realize that suicide and euthanasia are part and parcel of each other. Suicide is acting in such a way as to bring about one's own death. Euthanasia is acting on another's behalf to help them carry out their choice. Uh, in the same journal, the case for active euthanasia signed by some 25 Americans, including Joseph Fletcher, including Derek Humphrey, including Peter Amaral, who is the chief exponent of euthanasia in Holland today, and including Robert Risley of uh, Aid in Dying, we, the undersigned, declare our support for the decriminalization of medically induced active euthanasia when requested by the terminal yell. We believe that only a cooperating medical doctor should be the one to administer the life-taking potion. Ladies and gentlemen, you do not have to be a doctor to kill, all right? In Austria today, there are four nurses under indictment because of things they said in a beer hall where it became obvious that they had decided some 25 patients had lives not worth sustaining, echoes from the past. And finally, one patient who was just difficult, difficult to manage, so they fixed him. Am I talking about killing? Well, the word terminal condition, we are all terminal in that we all live and we are all going to die. It used to be expressed, there are only two certainties in life, death and taxes, and they both remain imperative. Terminal illness, terminally ill, the traditional interpretation of that word, terminally ill and imminently dying, is that the patient is within death within 48 to 72 hours. Sometimes one can predict that quite successfully. But aid in dying, and I am quoting from the Oregon Act as it is presently attempting to be passed in that state, aid in dying means any medical procedure that will terminate the life of the qualified patient. Aid in dying means any medical procedure that will terminate the life of the qualified patient swiftly, painlessly, humanely. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about killing. Uh, is it to be compassionate killing? Is it to be legalized killing? What of life? If you look in Bartlett's, there are page after page of quotations. Rudolf Matthäus, the great surgeon, wrote uh, in The Soul of a Surgeon, the transition between life and death should be gentle in the winter of life. Death under these conditions is invested with a certain grandeur and poetry. 
If it comes to a man or woman when they have completed their mission, there is nothing to fear, nothing to dread. Sir William Osler said half a century ago, I have careful records of 500 deathbeds studied particularly with reference to the modes of death and the sensations of the dying. 90 suffered bodily pain or distress of one sort or another, 11 showed mental apprehension, 2 positive terror, 1 expressed spiritual exaltation, 1 bitter remorse, but for the great majority there was no sign one way or another. Death like birth, their death was asleep of forgetting. Dr. Lamberton of the Hospice Association, who has written in his book, Care of the Dying, of 500 consecutive patients admitted to their hospice. Now those are most of them patients with terminal cancer. 37% had severe pain at the time of admissions. It was controlled over 99% of the time. So to use that this death is going to be painful uh, is, I suggest, not honest. If your doctor does not know how to control pain, then he is not in touch with modern pharmacotherapeutics. Uh, Mr. Humphrey's countrymen in England have considered this issue, and they say in their advice on euthanasia, and this is their conclusion, there should be no change in the law forbidding euthanasia in Britain, the deliberate taking of a life, human life, should be a crime. Sarah Whitfield, who was a senior nurse in the Bloomsbury Health Authority, comments euthanasia would completely change medical practice in Britain and would undermine the patients and the general public's trust in the medical profession. It would devalue human life and deter medical research into the relief of suffering. What about medical diagnosis and prognosis in one day in the United Press International Relief release, two men ruled dead uh, come back to life. For the second time in the same day, organ donor surgery was halted by signs of life. Doctors at a Memphis, Tennessee hospital canceled surgery to remove a dead man's liver. The other was a dead, so-called dead man who stunned doctors and nurses by coughing as they prepared to take out his heart. Well, now, is that just some strange aberration from some far distant land? The Boston Herald, Friday, April 14th, 1989, Holyoke woman revives after being declared dead at home. She was in the hospital where, quote, she seems to be doing well. New York Times, the great gray New York Times, Thursday, April 13, 1989, page B3. Right to die order revoked as patient in coma awakes. Testimony of a board-certified gerontologist that the patient was in a persistent vegetative state. The judge gave permission to clamp off the tubes. The nurses tended, the patient continued to tend her, urged her to take the little sips of water, and she woke up. Uh, and she said when asked about it, it's very hard to make decisions like this. I don't want to talk about it right now. Uh, the Death with Dignity movement treats medical diagnosis and prognosis as if they were always correct and could never be wrong. Let us look at the record. Or as Al Twain used to say, all I know is what I read in the newspapers. The Annals of Internal Medicine, October 88. 
page 582. Preventable deaths, who, how often, and why is the title of the article. Quotes, we found a significant number of hospital deaths might have been avoided. Reviewing 182 deaths, we found a 14% rate of probably preventable deaths. From the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, and this is in the New England Journal of Medicine, April 28, 1983, about 10% of autopsies revealed a major diagnosis that if known before death might have led to a change in therapy and prolonged survival. Uh, I could go on. Another paper, 18% of clinical diagnoses in patients who later died were inaccurate. High rates of error were found, more than half of which could have affected the patient's survival. Is that the kind of certainty on which you wish your life to depend? Santayana in The Life of Reason said, those who ignore history are condemned to relive it. I will read to you uh, an order released September 1st, 1939. Reichs Reichsleader Bueller and Doctor of Medicine Brandt are responsibly commissioned to extend the authority of physicians to be designated by name so that a mercy death may be granted to patients who, according to their human judgment, are incurably ill, according to the most critical evaluation of the state of their disease. No single doctor in the Third Reich, as far as the public record shows, was ordered to kill any single patient. It was just made possible. Originally, it was to be confined to those who were hopelessly mentally ill, and that meant largely chronic schizophrenia, hospitalized for more than, more than three years with a poor prognosis, who had not been visited by their family for a period of three or six months. At the Nuremberg trials, the figure for the number of patients killed was 275,000. It was the technology of killing and the personnel outside the mental hospitals and the handicapped institutions of Germany. It was that personnel and that technology that was transferred to Auschwitz, Buchenwald, and Belsen, and on that substrate, a Holocaust was remembered which we should never forget. And doctors were an essential part of that. Read William L. Shirer, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Read Robert M. Proctor of Harvard University's recent book, Racial Hygiene, Medicine Under the Nazis. Read Robert Lifton of Yale's book, The Nazi Doctors, Medical Killing and Psychology of Genocide, Basic Books, 1986. Read Benno Muller-Hill, Murder of Science, Elimination by Scientific Selection of Jews, Gypsies, and Others, The Useless Eaters, 1935 to 1945. What about Germany? In the August 89, volume 19, number two of the Hastings Center Reports, Robert Beach, a respected professor of ethics in America, just back from Russia and under glassnose, more things are becoming knowledge. Quotes, we heard repeated references to a past experience with legalized active euthanasia, an event with which we were unfamiliar. Apparently, the 1922 penal code of the Russian Federation permitted killing a patient on the grounds of mercy. We were told that the law was abused and abolished after six months. No such provision appears in the present code, 
the participants observed that if active killing for mercy were ever legalized again, the act would have to be performed by some other profession because the main duty of the physician is to sustain life. Euthanasia in the Netherlands, the finest compilation of papers in American literature are the five papers in Issues of Law and Medicine, volume number, volume three, number four, spring 1988, with advocates of euthanasia, that is, Dr. Amaral, and with others. And there is a paper in the following issue, volume number four, by Van der Sluis, The Practice of Euthanasia in the uh, Netherlands. There is another paper in the Hastings Center for January, February, Hastings Center reports January, February, uh, by Fenningson et al., the case against Dutch euthanasia. This is a quote from that paper, not from some ardent pro-lifer, you know, trying to stretch facts. Quotes, opinions polls show that a majority of the public that supports voluntary euthanasia, the so-called right to die, also accepts in, also accepts involuntary euthanasia, that is, denial of free choice and the right to life. Estimates by Dessauer, Gunning, and Rukenfranz that more people die in Holland by involuntary than by voluntary euthanasia. Voluntary euthanasia must also be rejected because of the fundamental discrepancy between the uncertainty of medical judgments which are fallible and the deadly certainty of the act. Now, some have commented in the ethical literature, well, supposing one person were put to death under such a scheme, who might have recovered? That would be acceptable. Ladies and gentlemen, the basic fabric of this great nation is that every single human life, regardless of dependency or state of development, is precious and protectable by law. It reaches right back to Thomas Jefferson. The care of human life and happiness and never its destruction are the first and the only purpose of good government. What we are demonstrating, what we discuss today has grave implications for this country, this state, this nation in the immediate future. At the turn of the century, life expectancy was a mere 45 years of age. Today it is 75 years of age. Diseases which were killers then are, curers, are curable today, but other diseases have taken their place and diseases of deterioration. Do we face problems? Yes. In 1985, there were 28.7 million citizens in America over the age of 65, 12 million over the age of 75. By the inexorable demographic facts already locked in place, in the year 2000, there will be 25 million senior citizens over the age of 65, 17 million over the age of 75. Alzheimer's type dementia affects one in 20 at age 60, one in four at age 80. It is a fact that dementia is the commonest condition causing admission in nursing homes and chronic health care facilities across the nation. There are going to be incredible stresses facing us in the future. Am I? 
Yeah, I think uh, another minute or two, and, and uh, we need to uh, bring the formal presentation to a close. I would close by stating that there is no right to die and that we must insist on the preservation of the Hippocratic tradition in medicine. That death is a genetically inbred inevitability inherent in the very humanity of every individual of the species Homo sapiens. The dignity in dying is, and death is not created or conferred by a printed piece of paper, by legislative decree, or by judicial fiat. That such dignity as exists in dying and in death is never lost if the human patient person is cared for with the respect and the compassion due to the dying human person. That for the human person patient food and water, warmth, competent and compassionate medical and nursing care, hygiene, basic hygiene, are basic human rights, not medically discretionary items that it is not a quantum leap from the useless eaters of the Third Reich to the words biologically tenacious individual, chronic vegetative state, incapacity of return to cognizant and sapient behavior as some ill and very disabled, incompetent Americans are presently being referred to in court decisions, in legislative hearings, and in the medical and ethical literature of this land. Those who ignore history are condemned to relive it. The experience in Germany, the apparently what happened in Russia, and what I believe is happening in Holland, means that this which you are assured can be confined. Uh, the burden of proof should rest on those who say that it can. So the unchanging challenge to you, to me, to all who truly care for and about the sick, the suffering, and the dying human person is to care so deeply for that patient as a person and not to question their worth, and in that caring to help the patient live with dignity while dying. I wonder, has no one ever heard of the hospice movement? We may be confident that if we successfully do that, and as a Christian, I would say, if we do that in his name, that when death occurs, that patient person will never have lost their inherent dignity. Then, ladies and gentlemen, and only then, can we say with the poet, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? Thank you very much. This is quickly to remind our radio audience that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, while I'm making these announcements, by the way, uh, the audience is encouraged to pass those yellow cards bearing your questions uh, to the aisle. You've been hearing three speakers, or rather two speakers, and we'll hear a third, addressing this issue of who lives, who dies, and who decides. You have just heard Dr. Joseph Stanton of the World Federation of Doctors Who Respect Human Life. He was preceded uh, at the podium by the Reverend Ralph Miro, Unitarian Minister, Director of the Pacific Northwest Branch of the Hemlock Society. And Professor Walter Benjamin of the Religion Department at Hamlin University will momentarily uh, be facilitating uh, dialogue 
between our two special guests. Let me be quick but strong to say that our co-sponsors today are as follows. The forum is co-sponsored today by the Lindquist and Venom Partners Fund and by the Science Museum of Minnesota as part of a lecture series funded in part by a grant from the Minnesota Humanities Commission. And we thank these entities for their generous support and encouragement. I am going to turn now to Professor Benjamin to uh, initiate the dialogue and the ongoing discussion. Your rapt attention and your gray hairs, including mine, indicate that you all are significantly interested in this issue. Our two speakers have fairly joined this uh, controversy, and I thank the committee for bringing them to our city. My first question is to Reverend Ralph Murrell. You indicated that physician-assisted suicide or the request for same would be rather rare. Yet, the New England Journal of Medicine article indicated that between five and 10,000 persons were given lethal injections by physicians last year in the Netherlands. If this number escalates, at what point would you begin to fear we were on a slippery slope or the wedge? If I'm not mistaken, five to 10,000 deaths per year in a country of 16 million people constitutes about six to seven percent of the total number of deaths. Six to seven percent of the total deaths. Now we don't know what an appropriate number of deaths would be in this type of situation. If in the United States we have virtually 70 percent of people dying of cancers and heart disease and cerebral vascular disorders and pulmonary obstructive diseases, that might be a very tiny percentage of the total number of deaths. I have not been to Holland, and I have no desire to necessarily be a, an apologist for Holland. However, I think we should give some credence to the status of the individuals in that country who defend the practice currently in place and who in a written correspondence to the New England Journal of Medicine have discredited the statements that we have just heard, signed by the Deputy General of the Royal Dutch Medical Association, the President of the Royal Dutch Medical Association, the Director of the National Hospital Association of the Netherlands, a Professor of Ethics at the Faculty of Theology in Amsterdam, the director of the University Center for Bioethics and Health Law, a number of leading Dutch physicians and medical ethicists say that what we are being told about involuntary death in Holland is simply not true. Thank you. My second question is addressed to Dr. Stanton. You have cited the Hippocratic Oath and its truths that endure for all time. Yet in Western culture, autonomy is one of our strongest values. Isn't physician refusal to assist in a death that protects the patient's integrity, dignity, and humanity a vestige of medical paternalism? Why should the disease have all the say and the person none? 
I would say that the question assumes that there is a conflict, and this whole debate assumes that there is a conflict between the patient. I would say that the question assumes that there is a conflict between the patient and the doctor. If the aims of the patient and the doctor are not the same, and the aims of, uh, of the family, then you've just got a situation of chaos and controversy. Uh, and I will defend, as long as I have life and breath in me, the ethical principles of the Hippocratic Oath. The word about stone, forbidding cutting for stone, charlatans did that, and all patients died at that time. There has been a little bit of evolution in medical practice and treatment over 2,400 years, but there has been no change in the definition of the ethical physician, which is expressed in the Oath of Maimonides, in the, the Declaration of Geneva, in the Hippocratic Oath. I am talking about an ethical tradition which has protected society protected the patient, has kept the doctor, has restrained, in a paper that I could not quote by Sidney, by Dr. Cass, the eminent physician philosopher in human, uh, I've got it there. He tells about a doctor who takes care of dying patients and he said, I am so glad that that restraint is there that I may not kill because it allows me to open fully and entering into the care of that patient without them ever thinking that I might do them in for reasons of compassion. A little bit of killing, uh, and a few people doing killing, can kill an amazing number of patients. And in a day when the state pays increasingly the medical bills, and we have talk even now about restricting medical treatment to certain aged, Consider this statement, which is in the ethical literature by Daniel Callahan. Cessation of nutrition may become the only effective way of making certain and large number of biologically tenacious patients actually die. Patients who have lived too long in the judgment of someone. Uh, I would beg society to use words in their usually understood meaning to not camouflage what we're going to do if we enter this route. I wish I shared the confidence of those say we can have a little bit of compassionate killing and it will never extend. But if the state pays the bills and the doctor is capable of killing and the state then, then decides that paying for certain other patients is too expensive, do you think the doctor will be open to that suasion? Dr. Stan, while you're still on your feet, here's a question from the audience. Does a competent patient have a right to refuse care? Isn't it fundamentally different when a physician honors such a refusal versus actively intervening to bring about death? I would say the patient, the conscious patient, will gain nothing by what is proposed here except they may not obligate the doctor to commit a homicidal act in the name of compassion. Mr. Merrill, uh, you indicated that none of us, and I agree with that, have come here to harm. 
and you said that it is time to change the law. And although one can conceive of a humane blueprint where physicians assist people to end their life, many of us here, religious and perhaps not religious, believe in universal sin or hubris. Would the pride or selfishness of relatives, say after a sizable estate, cause the best of legal blueprints to victimize the elderly? What safeguards would you pre, uh, propose? The greatest safeguard, of course, that we have is a strong lust for life. And that fades and diminishes only in the progress of great distress and generally of acute pain. Terminally ill persons could be given the right to receive assistance in dying, but only at their written request. Only when witnessed, when certified, with documentation by additional physicians. Would this cause disrespect for the medical profession? I know of families where suffering persons have received that kind of help, and they say, thank God for that doctor. They look at that physician with the highest of respect. If there are causes at work today which have diminished the esteem of physicians, I think they're primarily economic and primarily attitudinal in not listening to what people want. If physicians in instances of acute condition and the process of dying already well advanced can advance the patient's request, I think those physicians will become even more highly esteemed, not less so. This question is uh, open to either one of you. It seems to me as we listen to you, uh, Mr. Miro representing the Hemlock Society, your greatest uh, value is the avoidance of suffering. Suffering is the great evil to be uh, stayed away from at all costs, while uh, Dr. Stanton, perhaps representing uh, a right to life or a heroic treater mentality, death is the great evil to avo be avoided at all, all costs or to be postponed at all costs. Now those values, the fear of death on the one hand and the avoidance of suffering on the other, how do we bridge those two values? Either one, please. I think I bring to this the perspective of one whose life once depended on a machine. At the age of 15, I was one of four in my family. I came down with poliomyelitis and for six weeks, and for six weeks, my life depended upon an iron lung. I have attended many legislative hearings where people talk about unfortunate persons or patients in dehumanizing terms that they would be better off dead. I am so grateful to God that there was no one around with that mentality. All they would have had to do was open the port on that respirator and lower the pressure and I would not have survived to give so many people so many excedrin headaches as I have over a very busy lifetime of helping patients live and die with dignity. 
I agree totally, and I would quote in this ecumenical age a reflection of Pope John XXIII, who when stricken with cancer was asked a similar question, and he said, any day is a good day to be born, and any day is a good day to die. And I would add, but no day is a good day to be killed. We come to the end of our initial hour together. We have the promise of 15 more minutes of dialogue for those who can remain. But if you must leave, do feel free to do so at this time. Uh, the rest of us will look forward to the continuation of this dialogue between Dr. Stanton and Mr. Merrill. Thank you very much. We'll just take a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the word hospice has, has surfaced several times. Uh, I have a card here from the audience. The hospice concept is wonderful, but alas, in America, hospice units are governed by Medicare guidelines, which limit who can enter and, what, and at what time in their illness. Could either of you, perhaps beginning, go ahead with uh, the, the issue of hospice and what uh, perspective we have on the that issue? The hospice philosophy of providing compassionate medical and nursing care to dying patients is one which I have yet to find anyone disagree with. We certainly support hospice efforts in our organization. It should be recognized, however, though, that there are generally long waiting lists for participation in hospice programs. These are home care programs in our country. We do not have very many residential hospice facilities where a terminally ill person can go to die. There are many more people who would wish to be served than who can be served in hospice programs. And even those who are being served sometimes experience extents of ongoing pain and distress which these physicians and nurses are unable to control. The theory that we have somehow broken into a new day of universal pain management I think is greatly misspoken. Last week I was invited to meet with the hospice staff of one of the major teaching hospitals in Seattle. This is a, an institution from which pa to which patients come from all over the Northwest, one of the most prestigious cancer treatment hospitals we have. Those nurses and social workers and physicians admit that in spite of their best efforts, there are some persons, a small percent, perhaps 10%, for whom their efforts are essentially not effective. We should permit for those persons an opportunity to die at a time and in a manner which they choose and not have their lives drawn out, maintained only through technology or overdoses of pain medication against their will. Dr. Stan, do you wish to say something about hospice? Yes, movement? I would say that I believe if you read Cecily Saunders' work, the founder of hospice, and Richard Lamerton's book on the control of pain, who is a physician with hospice in England, 
they would be shocked at the statement that 10% of patients in Seattle in the hospice are suffering unusual pain, perhaps they'd better come over here and teach them of the modern methods of pain control. I am not, I have cared in a very busy medical practice with five other physicians for many, many patients who died of cancer and of other causes over 45 years. And I reject the idea that only in the Boston or in Massachusetts do we know how to control pain. Uh, and, and if we get this down to a tiny fraction of 1%, then maybe we won't have such heavy pressure to change a law which will open the law to so-called legitimized homicide. And I'd point out one other thing, that after the permission to shut off a respirator was given to Elizabeth Bovea, with the remarkable statement by one of the concurring judge who said her miserable life was such that she should have the right to end it, and the medical profession had an obligation to help her get dead as quickly as possible by any means, Elizabeth Bouvier rejected that choice and as far as I know still lives. So it's a funny area. Mm. One final note on pain management, of course. Physicians in England are permitted to prescribe certain drugs for dying patients which our physicians do not have access to. Physicians in, in hospice programs in England may use both heroin and cocaine for the medication of grievously suffering patients. I do not believe that your physicians in Minnesota have access to those drugs. The request from the audience, comment on the high cost of high-tech devices, even as simple uh, as a pacemaker, which may be denied patients over a certain age. This may be more the question, who pays? Where to, the financial side of, of the issue. One of the speakers in a forthcoming forum program here is a member of the State Senate in the state of Oregon. He will describe for you the very deliberate um, thoughtfulness which has been given in that legislature to managing health care costs. They found in the state of Oregon that there were funds which could provide organ transplants for 30 children or prenatal and delivery care for 1,200 women. Those legislators had to make a decision, and they chose the 1,200 women as being more deserving of the very limited funds available than 30 children. That's not a question of health economics, it's a question of social priorities. And we live in a country which is right now moving ahead to fund stealth bombers at $500 million each, and multi-billion dollar defense spending in many areas of questionable usefulness. And thus we are having these conversations about why there isn't enough money to take care of people here at home. I think that's a larger issue, and it's one that you should take some consideration of and I think explore. Uh, Dr. Stanton, is there a correlation 
between the rising rate of suicide among the elderly and their realistic fears of technological torture when dying? Well, the, uh, most people do not know that Ann Landers has sat on the board of the Society for the Right to Die, whose vehicle is the living will. And she uh, writes articles whereby elderly people assume that all is bleak beforehand and that they cannot die with dignity unless they have signed a living will. And she suggests that they write to the Society for the Right to Die uh, to get a copy of it. Uh, I, I find that appalling, as I find the fact there may come a day when we don't have enough money to go around. And I think it's fine for the state of Oregon to make a decision which it did, because everybody in the state of Oregon, if they do not agree with it, can vote out of office with those who chose that priority. I happen to believe that a nation that can launch stealth bombers at whatever cost I'm sure he can give you, or spend billions on alcohol, or billions on video cassettes to take home, if it were faced with the option of giving up maybe one weekend's videos, or one bottle of whiskey, or one uh, carton of cigarettes that a child might live, or an old person be treated with dignity, most Americans that I know would willingly, generously, cheerfully make that choice. I think there are creative ways of handling some of the problems that are addressed. I decry suicide, which is presently increasing in the elderly at the end of life and among our teenage children. And I find that appalling, and I think we all should be concerned about it. Here's a, uh, another question, perhaps uh, responded to first by uh, Mr. Merrow. Often a disabled or elderly person's judgment about his or her quality of life is heavily, heavily influenced by a lack of support services which could make possible a greater measure of freedom and happiness, and by the perception that others consider him or her a burden. If a person so influenced, so influenced chooses to be killed, can that really be called a free exercise of the right of self-determination? Please comment. That's a good question. I think we all need to try to encourage more communication between patients and family members and between patients and physicians. I propose that if the law were changed so that terminally ill persons could bring up this question with their physician, there might be instances where the physician would perceive that as a cry for help and the physician would be able then to orchestrate the intervention of additional resources that might help improve the quality of life for that patient for whatever remaining period there is. And if that happened so that the patient's status was improved and they did not die, I would be grateful for that outcome. I think we can all hope for that. But the reality is death will come and the question is, will we permit death to be brought to us in a way which does not strip away our sense of who we are and leave us a pain-wracked vegetable? Or will we insist upon a 
a law which, given the changes in healthcare today, does not serve the persons who are, for whom assistance is intended. Uh, stay there, uh, Mr. Firo. Uh, Miro, I've got another question here. Uh, while many uh, medical professionals believe a woman should have the right to abortion, relatively few perform a non-therapeutic abortion. Likewise, while many physicians feel their patient may have a right to a humane death, few may participate in assisted suicide. You've heard the feelings on this matter from Dr. Stanton. Add to this the fact that some anthropologists attest to cultural disorder when the role of healer and killer are collapsed into one. Do you fear that kind of cultural disorder if mixed signals are given to patients on behalf of their doctors? I think physicians can be very straightforward with, with patients and say, I'm not prepared to meet that request. They may even wish to put a sign on the wall of the office stating their ethical or religious belief and whatever those limits might be. That's perfectly appropriate. I think doctors should state their position on this issue. In Washington State, we have just completed a survey of the physicians in Clark County, which is in southwest Washington around the city of Vancouver. This was a very small sample of just the physicians who were licensed to practice, who were medical members of the Clark County Medical Society. But we found in response to the question, would you consider assisting a dying patient to die if it were legal to do so? No commitment. Would you consider assisting a dying patient to die if it were legal to do so? 50% of the responding physicians said yes. On to that, Larry, uh, uh, President Harry Truman once said, there are liars, damn liars, and statisticians. I think if he were alive today, he would add also pollsters. Every physician hopefully assists every patient who is dying. If you ask the doctors the question, if the law makes homicide legal, will you perform the act of homicide with the patient, I suspect you would get a true incidence of doctor resistance to this. The words aid in dying and the, the fuzziness, the blurring of issues. I go right back to what I said at the beginning. Uh, let us be honest in what we say and what we do. What my opponent asks for is a total change in the thrust of medicine, in society's act, handling of the act of homicide. Compassionate homicide, you may call it that. Uh, if he actually knows 50% of doctors who will deliberately kill the patient if this is simply legal, then everybody in this hall should be very, very concerned because we all will one day die. And if you do not know when the door opens and the doctor or the nurse comes towards you with a syringe, whether it bears a medicine to heal you or whether it contains a medicine, that's not with dignity, that's not death with dignity, ladies and gentlemen. That 
is panic and, and terrible. There are many questions in hand that for which there is not time to uh, pose them, but be assured that all of them will indeed be put in the hands of our speakers to, to mull the more. In coming uh, to the church this morning, I was thinking of a text from the Old Testament uh, simply stated, let life have value. I feel that both of our speakers are, are coming from that same motive, though from different uh, direction, shall we say, in addressing that moral thrust. We certainly are indebted to them for uh, the expertise and the thrust and uh, indeed the, the, the energy and uh, passion they, they bring to the subject and, and so do us. And we stand indebted to both of them as to Professor Benjamin for uh, helping with the dialogue so ably. Let us thank them. See you in two weeks.